Good morning. If you would, grab a Bible, turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 26. Acts, chapter 26 is where we will begin in this part of our worship. Acts, chapter 26. You do well to have a Bible open to that place as we search the Scriptures to find out what God would have us to do and to think about as we look at His revelation. Thank you so much for being here. We have visitors with us. We want you to know we're glad that you're here. We always want to say something about our visitors because we want them to feel welcome. We want you to know that we're excited that you've chosen to visit with us. We want to get to know you better, and anything we can do to help you to draw closer to God, we want to do that. So please let us know about that. I want to begin by reading here Acts chapter 26 and verse 12. Acts 26 and verse 12, where we come in on the middle of Paul describing before King Agrippa uh, his conversion. Acts 26 and 12 In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. So Paul describes this scene where he sees the Lord. He sees a bright light. And here's a voice, but there is a detail of something that he mentions in verse 14 that is just fascinating to me. In verse 14, Jesus says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Paul's persecution of the church is part of a deeper, bigger story. That's what we learn here. A story in which Jesus was working on Paul with goads. Now, I don't know if you have much familiarity with goads, but this is a goad. This is at least the best picture of a goad I could find. A goad is a stick with a sharp point on the end. Sometimes they were metal. They were used to drive cattle. And the way that would happen would be they would prod the cattle along, prod the ox along as they would plow. And if you wanted the ox to turn, you would would poke him in a certain way. And if you wanted him to go faster, you'd poke him in a certain way. But what would happen is a particularly obstinate animal would kick against the goading. And you could just imagine, if you have a sharp stick and you kick against it, that's not going to be very comfortable. And so kicking against the goads is what Jesus says Paul was doing. It is hard for you, he says, to kick against the goads. I'm trying to push you in a certain direction, but you won't go. Instead, you fight me. And when you fight me, it's hard for you. God was working on Paul. Jesus was pushing Paul, leading him toward what he was doing. Because God wants all men to be saved. And what this passage shows me is that there are ways that God can prod us and move us that are independent or at least without, outside the gospel. And I want to think for a few minutes about some ways God can do that. Because what I want us to see is that God is behind these things when they come up in our lives. And that when we want other people to be saved the way God does, we need to understand that God's hands are not tied simply because people might not yet respond to the gospel. That God has ways of goading people along toward Him. And I want us to think about what some of those are. So I want to be clear as I begin. The gospel is the power of God to salvation. The gospel is what saves us. But there are things that can make people more receptive to the gospel. And that's what I want us to talk about for a few minutes this morning. So the question is, how does God work on people? And the first answer I want to give to that question is, people 
win people. Let's go to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter 3. God works on people to bring them to him in one way by people winning them over toward him. 1 Peter 3 and verse 1. 1 Peter 3 and verse 1, the text says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. I want you to notice that wording. He said they are one, they are one without a word. So this is not about teaching opportunities. This is not about eloquence. This is not about a fancy new study plan where we're going to get people convinced of the gospel. This is about regular everyday life, people winning people over. They may be one without a word. And it speaks to a long-term process, in my view, as this text talks about wives' submission to their husbands winning over the husband over a long period of time. God can use people to slowly change other people over time as they see the response that we have to a crisis or as they see our steadfast devotion or as our real character emerges over time. And both biblical examples and personal experience teach us that this works. People do have an influence on people, especially over time. And that when we consistently live the way we should before others, that has an impact. They see it, and they are intrigued by what they see. And in doing so, we win them over. I want you to go with me to the book of Daniel, chapter 6. Daniel, chapter 6. Daniel, chapter 6, talks about Daniel during the reign of the Persian king Darius. And it says in Daniel 6 and verse 3, This Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. So, This story is rather familiar to us. Daniel is so impressive in his business that they can't find any accusation to make against him in his business. So instead, they make it illegal for him to pray. And because they know he will pray, he is then arrested under that law. Verse 14, it says, Then the king, when he heard these words, hearing that Daniel is going to be arrested, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians, and that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. And the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. And the king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. So down in verse 19, Then at break of day the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. And as he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to him, O Daniel, servant of the living God, Has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? I want you to notice what's happening in Darius. Do you see it? Darius wants to help Daniel. Why? Because Daniel is an awesome guy. Because Daniel is his right-hand man. Because Daniel is so good at his job 
and he's so devoted to his God that the worst thing you can say about him is he prays too much. And so Darius, you can see his heart is in his hands. I wish I could help you. He, wait, he labored till the sun went down to try to change his law. That's kind of a funny thing that the king can't change his own law, but that's another story for another sermon. The king wants to save Daniel because Daniel won him over. And at the end of the story, he's not a believer in Jehovah God. But he certainly is impressed by Daniel. And he has the faith to say, if anybody can save anybody, Daniel's God can save Daniel. Because he is so devoted to him. He wins him over. Now, isn't that an interesting idea? That people win people without really the gospel being exchanged at all? That we win people over by the way that we act in our personality or by the way we do our job. Or by the fact that when they try to find fault with us, there's nothing they can find fault about. It's intriguing to me because I think the same thing happens when Paul and Silas are singing hymns after being beaten in the Philippian jail. And the jailer hears them. And he doesn't say, oh, well, from that hymn, I'm going to become a Christian. But what he does say is, when I'm in a crisis, I know who to go to. And he rushes in and says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They won him over. It makes me wonder if there wasn't something for Paul like this. That maybe in seeing Stephen as he was stoned, cry out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. If there wasn't something in the way that these Christians argued and lived that, that drew Paul to them, so that maybe he wasn't ready for the gospel yet, but in some way he was intrigued. Sometimes we develop these kinds of relationships with people in the gospel. In fact, I think that for those of us who are Christians, we can say, this has happened to us. That there are people who we may say are essential or influential in why we obeyed the gospel. They won us over to it. Not that they taught us everything. Not that everything we learned to believe came directly from them. But, but their example won us over to them. I think of two people in my life. I think of my mom and I think of my wife. Not because my mom and my wife have had just the longest, most extensive doctrinal discussions you can imagine but because I learned from them. These are people who believed in me and cared about me, and they believe in God and care about God. And I'm drawn to it because of them. People win them over, and God is at work through that. New Testament Christians had that too. So there are people who say, you are my son in the gospel or my father in the gospel. A special relationship because you have won me over to it. But I want to go a step farther than that not just to acknowledge that we have people that are essential to our faith who have won us over to God, but that we need to see that that is a way God is at work. God works through people to influence other people. And so when we see that, don't just praise the people you love or the people who matter so much. Praise the God who used them. Second, God works on people because circumstances humble them. We have a funny way with our circumstances. Have you noticed that we want our circumstances, we want our money and our relationships and all the things in our life to be just perfect. But what happens when they get to be just perfect? Well, then we tend to forget about God. And we tend to think, well, I just want to put my feet up and just enjoy everything being perfect. By the way, have you got there yet? I haven't made it. 
We have that funny thing about our circumstances. And so when we are so convinced that our circumstances are the key to our happiness and our peace, God has a way of changing our circumstances. I want to show you a couple examples of that. I want you to go with me to the book of Amos. Amos chapter 4. Yeah, we're going to do a little work in the Minor Prophets here. Feel free to sing that Books of the Bible song. Amos chapter 4 and verse 6. Amos 4 and verse 6 says, I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities. Okay, please understand cleanness of teeth is not about hygiene here. I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I also withheld the rain from you. When there were yet three months to the harvest, I would send rain on one city and send no rain on another city. One field would have rain and the field on which it did not rain would wither. So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water and would not be satisfied. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I struck you with blight and mildew. Your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees and your olive trees, the locust devoured. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I sent among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. I killed your young men with a sword and carried away your horses. And I made the stench of your camp go up into your nostrils. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew some of you as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. And you were as a brand plucked out of the burning. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. Those are chilling words. But what God is saying is pretty clear. I tried to reach out to you. I tried to get your attention. I tried and tried and tried. And all of the ways I tried had to do with your circumstances. I changed that you didn't have enough to eat. And I sent rain on some. And then some people died. And then some of you were overthrown. All I was doing was trying to get your attention. So that you would pay attention and do what is right in my eyes. And yet he says, you did not. The goal is to get them to return to him. You see, God never forces our obedience. But this is a way God can change our hearts about obedience. Because when circumstances change, it changes us. And it gets us ready to consider, maybe I need to make some changes. Go with me to the book of Haggai. Book of Haggai. I'll be quiet for a minute. Haggai chapter 1. God is expecting, in the book of Haggai, his people to rebuild the temple after the Persian captivity. And they come back and they begin to build their own houses instead of the temple. And so Haggai is is there to shake them up. Haggai chapter 1 and verse 3. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. How about the bag of holes? Do you ever feel like that in your month? You put the money in and it just drains out. He is saying, 
I use these things to get your attention. You don't have what you need. You keep trying and you keep not having it. I blew it away, he says. Consider your ways. Probably the best and most vivid example of the circumstances humbling us is the story of the prodigal son. Prodigal son who takes his dad's money, leaves, goes to a far country and wastes it all with, with wasteful living. And then what wakes him up? There's a famine in the country, a famine, a circumstance. And then he goes and he is feeding the pigs and he wants so badly to just eat what the pigs are eating. And those beautiful words, he came to himself. He realized how far he had fallen because of his circumstances. His circumstances changed him and humbled him. When circumstances need to change, God is willing to comply if that's going to help him work on us. So, when we see circumstances change, what do we think about? Do we think, oh man, I've just got to get this fixed so I can get back to normal? Or do we consider the possibility that maybe, maybe something needs to change in my dynamic with God? Maybe there are things that I need to consider about myself. Am I connected with God? Am I living right? Am I sincerely serving? Am I doing what I should be doing? When other people have these kinds of issues, things go topsy-turvy in other people's lives. It is an opportunity it is a moment when the iron is hot. Circumstances can change them and humble them. And we need, to be see that God, we need to see that God may be trying to get their attention and working on them through their circumstances. Third, God works on people because sin ruins them. You see, it may be that like the prodigal son, our sin is our fault. We're in the pigsty because we chose to be in the pigsty. And so... We need to realize what's happened and begin to come out of the pigsty because we need to acknowledge that I'm the one who's responsible because of the way I have been living. The thing about sin is that sin has its own set of consequences and that sometimes the way God works on us is just by letting sin run its natural course. And when sin runs its course, it chews us up and spits us out. And we are the worse for the wear. Sin ruins us. I want you to go with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4. <clears throat> so when we, we have experience with sin, sin taints us. It enslaves us. It harms us. It affects everything about us. And it begins to affect the way even we think. That's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4 and verse 17 says, Now this I say, Ephesians 4, 17... Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. In the futility of their minds, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. This is a passage about our thinking and how our thinking is affected by the world around us and by the sin within us. And he uses some words that are very powerful to describe that. He talks about in verse 17 that they are darkened, I'm sorry, verse 18, they are darkened in their understanding. That there is ignorance in them due to their hardness of heart and they have become callous. The idea here is that our thoughts, when we focus on sin, become worse and worse, more and more corrupt. And it begins to darken the way that we think 
and the way that we understand the world. Then he uses the idea of being callous, where something that had feeling once now no longer has feeling. And he talks about having a hard heart, a heart that no longer has feeling. That is the idea of what happens to us when sin runs its course. Don't you get tired of the ugliness in the world around you? Don't you get tired of not having anything good to think about? The awful words, the awful images, the negativity of the world around us. Can't we see that this is the problem? That it is sin that's let go. Sin at the point of ruination. What he is describing here is Gentiles... Two Gentiles who used to be like that. And he says, don't forget that's who you were. Don't forget that's where they are. It's a position of sin. Sin let going on. Sin that is to the point of ruin. Now, here's the question. Can God use that? And the answer is yes. God can use that. God does use that. I don't know about you, but I know about me. Part of what has led me to leave a life of sin behind is just disgust at where I was. To get to a point where I was tired of sin and all that sin had done to me. Go with me to the book of Proverbs chapter 5. I want to explain to you why I use the word ruin here. Proverbs chapter 5 is the one that, that gave me this word. In Proverbs 5 and verse 7, Proverbs 5 and verse 7 says, And now, O sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless. Lest strangers take their fill of your strength, and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life you groan, when your flesh and your body are consumed, and say, How I hated discipline! And my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. So he describes someone who in verse 8 has gone after this immoral woman. And he talks about how that goes on and on and on. Strangers take their fill of your strength. And you say, in verse 12, how I hated discipline. I didn't listen. People tried to tell me, but I didn't want to do it. And now look where I am. I was in the midst or the brink of utter ruin in the midst of the assembly. He's not really talking about physical destruction, not death really. He's talking about the moral ruin that occurs when we continue in sin. That's the picture of sin. New Testament pictures sin as a gangrene, a cancer. That's the picture of sin. In the New Testament, it pictures it as something that goes on and on and on. Romans 1, a spiral. So, what I am trying to say is that these warnings serve as warnings so that we'll know when we get to that point what's happened. We can come to ourselves and see this is the problem. And I want to particularly say, We've all gone a little bit down that road of sin, some farther than others. 
We all know what this feels like. To wake up and say, I don't want this anymore. But we don't get to that point unless God works through us having a little bit of the ruin, a little taste of what sin can do. My point then is that when we see others who have turned away from God and are not interested in the gospel, it may be that God is going to allow them to experience a little bit, to let them go, to give them up, and let them experience what sin can bring into their lives. And maybe then God can work through their response to that ruin. And the final thing I want to talk about is that God works on people through fear. Fear changes them. Isn't it amazing how fear changes our bearing and our attitude? Isn't it amazing how in Acts chapter 8, Saul is holding the coats of those who stoned Stephen, and in Acts chapter 9, he's a totally different person? When Jesus appears to him on the road, he is very respectful. Isn't it amazing that when we think we have everything figured out very shortly, we find that that's not true at all? Isn't it amazing that when the jailer is on the night shift one minute, the next minute there's an earthquake and he is trembling before Paul and Silas saying, what must I do to be saved? There is something that happens when we become afraid. I want you to go with me to Exodus chapter 12. You can see this in the story of Pharaoh. Exodus chapter 12. At the end of the story of the Exodus, you have the 10th plague. And all through the story, Pharaoh has been this figure that is incredibly obstinate, willful. He knows what he's going to do. I will not let these people go. You will not serve Jehovah your God. No. And then, of course, plague after plague seems to wear him down. And in that moment, he'll say, okay, just anything. Just take away the plague. You can go. And then, of course, when the plague is gone, he's back to his old self. Exodus chapter 20, though, describes the last plague. I'm sorry, Exodus 12 and verse 30. Exodus 12 and verse 30. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt. For there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go and serve the Lord, as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses had told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had, let them, had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Then they plundered the Egyptians. Do you hear the fear? Get out of here now. And bless me, by the way, as you go. And then, of course, there are the people. The people who are terrified because of this carnage that has happened. They are changed in their disposition toward the Israelites. They give them all their stuff. Fear has a power to it. It changes our perspective on everything. Because suddenly we're not the ones in control anymore. Or at least maybe for the first time we realize we're not in control I want to look at one more passage. It's in Jonah chapter 3. And I want to show you how the people of Nineveh change through their fear. Jonah chapter 3. 
Now, I don't know how much you know about or have studied the, the nation of Assyria, but the nation of Assyria was famed for its brutality. And they were brutal in their takeover of Israel, the northern tribes. They would have been brutal to Judah had, had Jehovah not intervened. They are an awful and brutal people. And now Jonah goes to preach to them. It's part of the reason Jonah doesn't want to go. In Jonah chapter 3 and verse 4, I want you to notice how they change. Jonah 3, 4. Jonah began to go into the city going about a day's journey. And he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them cry, call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Notice how they changed. They are afraid. Simple message, 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. There might have been more to it than that, but that's what's recorded. And they say, oh no, we better straighten up. And they mourn, and the king mourns, and the people change, and the people repent. But I want you to notice, it's not really a message about God, is it? I mean, God is in there, because he's the one who's going to punish. But it's not about how God wants them to change their lives and be this kind of people and believe in him. It's not a gospel message, in other words. It's just a message that produces fear. Fear is not all bad. In fact, it seems to me that there is a very important function fear plays. Have you ever had a time where you thought you were going to die? I think we probably all had those. The one that sticks out to me was when I was on an airplane and it began to fill with smoke. And I did not think we began to have trouble breathing. I did not think we were going to survive. And for probably 30 minutes or so, we, we were in this limbo. And there is nothing like fear to cut through everything else. Help you understand whether or not you're right with God, ready to die what's really important in life, what you think about, what you want to say. I tell you, there's nothing like that. Now, I don't, I don't want to go through it again, but there's nothing like it. Fear changes us because no longer do we think, oh, I'm in control, I have so much time. No longer do we think, oh, this will all go the way I want it to. Suddenly, we know, we know what really matters. And in those moments... The iron is hot. In those moments, there is potential for change that is great. There is a reason why when national catastrophes happen, people want to go to church. It's because fear changes us. And we act differently because we know what really matters in those moments. And that's the way God works on us. People win people. Circumstances humble people. Sin ruins people. Fear changes people. Why would I talk about this? Please listen to me. I want to talk about this because sometimes we get the thought, and I've heard it expressed by my brothers, we get the idea that nobody is interested in the gospel anymore. 
And nobody wants to do right anymore. And our society is just going terribly. And I just want to remind us that God's hands are not tied just because some people are uninterested at the moment. And God is still at work on people. Using people to win them, using circumstances to change and humble them, using their own sin and using fear. These are real and they work. The other reason I want to talk about this is because all of us have people in our lives, some of us very close to us. Sometimes it's our own children who have walked away from the Lord. And they are not serving the Lord and they are not interested in serving the Lord. And we begin to wonder, what can I do? How can I change their hearts? And I want to remind you that God works even outside the gospel to change people's hearts using people and circumstances and sin and fear. The, the story is not over. God is still at work. And in particular, I'll just say for myself, I have learned to have a lot of confidence in the fact that sin does not give what it promises. And at the end of that road, we find it lacking. It's happened to me over and over again. And when people know where to turn to come back to the Lord, there is hope at the end of that road. And so it is, it is hope that I want to give you as you deal with those people in your life and your family. It's hope to say, you know what, I want to be the kind of person that's going to win them over so that when they're ready, they know where to come. It's hope to say, maybe I need to pray for things that are going to be hard for them because hard things may change them and ultimately would be what's best for them. But my hands are not tied somehow just because they have made choices against God. But most of all, I have to ask the question, is that you? Are you the person who is kicking against the goads? Where God is trying in all these different ways to get your attention and to pull you toward him. And you just kick and fight and it is hard for you. I know what I'm talking about because I've done it. And I want to encourage you. If that is you, isn't there a time where you just stop fighting and give in to God? Where you give your will over and say, I know this is better than what I've been doing. And I'm going to follow God. If you're ready to do that this morning, we want to give you this opportunity at the close of our service. This invitation to come and to have the forgiveness of Jesus that's available because he died for you. To give your life over to him, to be buried with him in baptism. We invite you to come to the front right now as we stand and sing to encourage you.